You're listening to Podcateers. Welcome to episode 327 of Podcateers. Last week, our pal Jason and I talked about a really great documentary about a band named Halix. This week, I had the pleasure of talking to the director of that film, Matthew Serrano. Matthew and I talked about what sparked his love for Disney and what led him to becoming a documentary filmmaker. We talk about how contrasting your experiences can mold the type of storyteller or even the type of person that you become. And of course, we talk about both of his documentaries, Remain Seated Please, A Hoot and Chief Story, and Live from the Space Stage, A Halix Story. You can connect with Matthew on Instagram. He's at Matthew underscore Serrano. That's S-E-R-R-A-N-O. And he's at Matthew G. Serrano on Twitter. Both of those links, including his films and links to his and the Defunct Lang YouTube channels will be available on the blog post for this episode at podcuteers.com slash 327. Remember that if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for Podcuteers. We'd love to hear your thoughts on anything that we talk about in this or any other episode. Before we start, I'd like to send a very special shout out and thank you to the FGP squad, aka our podcast fairy godparents, because it's their monthly support via Patreon that help make these episodes of Podcateers possible. If you would like more info on how you can become part of the FGP squad family, you can get more information by going to podcateers.com FGP. Once again, a very special thank you to the FGP squad for their continued support. This was a super fun episode, so uh, I just want to take a quick moment to thank Matthew for his time. Uh, He's a really down-to-earth dude, a really talented filmmaker, and I'm really looking forward to having him on the podcast again and also seeing what else he brings to us in the future. So let's jump in. Here is episode 327 of Podcateers. Well, uh, today I have the pleasure of sitting down with the director of a film that none of us knew we needed to see. It's fantastic. That film is live from the space stage, a Halix story. With us today is Matthew Serrano. Matthew, welcome to the podcast, man. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to talk about the movie. Of course, man. Of course. Uh, so before we jump into Halix itself, let's talk a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? You know, were you like an Epcot kid? Were you a Disneyland proper kid growing up? Tell us a little bit about you. <laughs> well, it's funny that you asked that about the Epcot question. I believe I did go to Epcot briefly when I was, I want to say like two or three or four years old, really, really young. I, rem- uh, I don't remember, actually, my, my parents told me that um, apparently when they took me, see, I grew up as a Disneyland kid. And apparently, um, when they took me when I was very, very young to Florida, at some point, we went to Walt Disney World, and we walked into the Magic Kingdom, and I took a look around at their main street. And I, I don't know what it was that I was saying to them. But basically, what they the gist that they got from me is that I realized everything was wrong as they put it. (laughs) And I just started crying my head off. Um, I wanted to leave immediately. And so they they left and they gave our tickets to a different family. And that was my first time going to Walt Disney World experience. Um, 
Eventually, we did go over to Epcot, and I think I was a better sport about Epcot. Um, but I have no memory of those happening. But yeah, like like you were asking, I, I've grown up here in Southern California for uh, all of my life. And so I went to Disneyland very regularly as a kid and then didn't go for a while from the recession happening and my family going, uh, we don't need Disneyland tickets for a while. And so there's a big long gap where I didn't go to Disneyland. And then I started going again in high school a ton with my friends. Right on. So it, it was like a frequent thing, like every weekend, every month, like two, three times a year type thing when you were growing up before you hit high school. Yeah, we were pass holders. So it was it was so frequent that my mom would do this thing where she because I actually kind of was the type of kid that got sick a lot. So it wasn't too far of a stretch for her to do this, but she would always be pulling me out for doctor's appointments. And, you know, the teacher would come over and be like, oh, you're getting excused after, you know, after, after recess. And I'd be like, uh, okay. And then I'd go outside, meet my mom in the car. And then she'd be like, yeah, I lied to the teacher. We're going to Disneyland again. <laughs> right on. I mean, not, not that that's something that should be happening, but right on. <laughs> that's fantastic. Uh, yeah, you know, I didn't grow up going to the parks as much as, as some people that I know. So uh, when people tell me about going as a kid, sometimes I see these videos and these pictures of what Disneyland in the 80s and early 90s looked like. And it's crazy to think how much has changed in just, you know, 30 years. But as similar as it is, it's a totally different place. <laughs> Sorry. No, you're good. I was actually going to say, because you were talking about the going to Disneyland as, as a kid thing. You know, I, I, I do consider myself very fortunate that I was able to go to Disneyland as a kid because it's cool. It's really cool being such a huge fan now as an adult, but then also having an understanding of like, you know, how how the things are made and whatnot and what goes into the making of the experiences and the attractions and whatnot. But it's cool having that experience as a kid because as a kid, you look at it through a completely different lens. Like for example, something that I really took for granted was um, in the original Star Tours versus the current Star Tours 2.0 that they have today. When you're standing in front of the doors about to go onto the simulator, mm -hmm. in the new one, they have pumped in these fake artificial sounds of like a working um spaceport in the old star tours they didn't have any of those noises instead you would actually hear all the actual servos and motors of the simulator on the other side of the door and oh, so wow. as a kid i actually standing there about to go on star tours for the first time i thought oh my god there's a real spaceship back there <laughs> and so there's little things like that that it's it's really nice to kind of have you know ex have experience as a kid because then you kind of remember you know what what makes the, the little details that make things so special you know it's it's a hard thing to describe yeah no i totally understand because i think as an adult i still feel that wonder uh so going back to when you were a kid when did you start kind of seeing the parks with that eye when did you learn about imagineering and when did you feel like oh this is really interesting outside of the magic that the park itself provides you um i remember the exact moment i was at a family friend's house and um they have two daughters um one's name is diana and she was my friend and then 
her older sister, um, I believe her name was Stephanie. She was really into knowing all of that stuff. And so I remember, I can't remember exactly the first thing that she pointed out to me. It must've been something like, did you know that there's a basketball court on the top of the Matterhorn or something like that? Mm -hmm. It it, it was something like that where it, it, it went from like, cause I don't, I don't even know if at that time I really knew about Easter eggs and video games, but it was something where it was like, wait, like you learn one secret and then now you have to learn all of them. And so I remember from that conversation, that is what sparked me being fascinated in like, oh, well, I need to know more. And at the time, like I didn't know how to use the internet to really access that information. And so it wasn't until later on when I, got the pass again and I was going through and I thought to my, and, and suddenly that, that, that fascination as a kid came flowing back to me. And so now me as a high schooler with access to things like Reddit and, and, and YouTube and whatnot, going crazy and, and searching up every little thing that I can and every backstory and every making of and history of and see top 10 secrets you didn't know. And then, from there taking really deep dives and finding out things like, wait, there's a blog about these guys who snuck around horizons. This is weird. How did I get here? <laughs> it's a rabbit hole, man. I've been down that rabbit hole. Uh, my, my entry into this world was learning about the haunted mansion and everything that went into creating it and the legend of the Hatbox ghost. And once I learned about that, I was hooked. I didn't want to do anything else uh, except that uh, I think I'm much older than you. And so my entry into <laughs> that internet world was like BBSs and AOL and the <laughs> connecting to the internet. Yeah. So it was, I mean, it was a different time. Thankfully, there were uh, ways of getting that information, but it was nothing like it was today. You know, now there's so many fan sites. There's so many people on YouTube, like, you know, Kevin, for instance, uh, over on Defunctland, that do such a great job of chronicling these things that happen in the parks that have happened, former attractions, and so on and so forth, that it's much easier for a fan that doesn't know anything about the parks to jump in headfirst and just be immersed with 80 years worth of content. But it's fantastic. And I think we all love it, which is why we do this type of stuff, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Did you know that you wanted to be a filmmaker growing up? Like, what was it that introduced you to the filmmaking aspect? And uh, how did this whole directing these documentaries come to be? Honestly, to answer your question, honestly, I, I knew that I always wanted to be a storyteller, first and foremost. Uh, as young as I can remember, I was I was reading, I was actually reading at a really young age. Apparently in kindergarten, um, I was teaching my fellow classmates how to read. Um, so I already had a love for stories and storytelling from a really young age. And when I was really young, it was you know, wanting to write books because I loved books. And then it became, I want to be Walt Disney and I want oh, to be an wow. animator. Then it became, no, I want to be a storyteller in the sense of someone like Hayao Miyazaki. Oh yeah. And falling in love with the Studio Ghibli films. 
And then from there, I think the first moment of me being like, no, 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 film, filmmaking, that's what I want to do, was seeing Raiders of the Lost Ark for the first time. Because I kind of, in my head, I, I, was the, I was the kid that, you know, we had a DVD player in the back of our car. And so I would just watch tons and tons and tons of movies in the back of our car. And, you know, after the fifth time of watching, you know, A Bug's Life, it's like, okay, well, what else is there to watch on this magical little disc? And then that's when I started getting into bonus features of every movie that I watched. And I think, I think, when my family got the, I think it was like 2003 special edition box set of Star Wars, the original trilogy. Um, That's the black and silver box, right? Yeah, the one that had the uh, the um, Empire of Dreams. Yeah, documentary. yeah, yeah. Okay, I have that one as well. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I know which Empire, one you're talking about. The Empire of Dreams documentary, I think, was like really the first big thing that kind of made me realize, like, oh, there's people that make these movies. But then when I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark, it was like, that was, that was the movie that blew my mind where I was like, this is the coolest movie ever. And I want to make something as cool as this. And it's, it's so funny to think that, you know, all these years, you know, I wanted to be like, you know, the next Spielberg and all this stuff. And I got really wrapped into, into that and YouTube sketch stuff when that was a big thing. And, you know, it wasn't like, until two or three years ago when I was wrapping up studying at college and yeah, no, I want to say, um, yeah, I want to say maybe four years ago when my mom suggested to me, well, if you're just taking your time at college and you want to get one more course filled in this semester, why not take the documentary class that your college has? And I was like, no, documentaries are boring and those aren't real filmmakers and I'm going to be a real <laughs> filmmaker, make real films. And she convinced me to do it. And I very quickly realized that documentaries prevented, like, or presented a very interesting challenge for me where I thought, okay, well, I can take all the things that I don't like about documentaries and all the things I love about narrative filmmaking and maybe combine the two of them. And I think it was when I saw uh, Kevin's Disney's America video. Oh, yeah, yeah. That, I, that was kind of like the aha moment where I just showed everyone that week, like, see, you can tell engaging stories in the theme park space. You can absolutely tell engage, engaging stories. It's just a matter of how you tell them. Yeah. You know, because no offense to, you know, other Disney content creators out there, but, you know, when... I, I've talked to people before about like Disney YouTube stuff and they, their mind goes to one of two things. Either it goes to vloggers or it goes to, you know, glorified history videos that are really just someone reading off a Wikipedia page. Yeah. And so to me, Kevin's content and especially his Disney's America video was like, see, you can make legit films about this stuff. And you know, a few months later, I was talking to a composer friend of mine who actually later on went on to com to be a co-composer on Live from a Space Stage. I was talking with him and then I brought up, like I mentioned earlier, I brought up, um, hey, have you ever heard of this website, Mesa Verde Times? These guys snuck around Horizons and that's when I kind of put two and two together and made that film. 
Right on, man. Yeah, I have to agree with you that when it comes to documentaries, there there's a lot of documentaries that have so much potential to be just amazing because of the content that they're presenting. But then the way that they go through the story, the way that they guide you through what they're trying to show you, just is horrible. And halfway through, you just think to yourself, why did I start watching this? And you either move on to something else or it sours you to the genre altogether. And I, I, I want to remember which one it was, but there was one particular doc- documentary that I watched that just, I felt the same way that you felt watching Kevin's video that I thought, wow, this is the way documentary should be because I was engaged. Like I went through a myriad of emotions watching that documentary. And at the end, I thought, I, I, I want to do this. You know, I had a very similar trajectory to you when I was in school, but I started coding originally. I wanted to be a coder. I wanted to do engineering, but I knew that I really loved art and I loved music. And when I found out that I could take like 3D animation classes and I could learn how to, you know, do storyboarding and put together these films, I thought, well, what if I work for like DreamWorks or Pixar? That would be amazing. And then I thought, wow, hey, I found out that they have engineers and they have coders that put together RenderMan and they do all these things in the background. Look at what Ed Catmull did for them. Ultimately, I took a different route in life, but I understand what it's like to have that one piece of media that ultimately sparks your creativity. And it's, you know, what Dreamfinder and uh, Figment call that one little spark, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So let's go back to Remain Seated, please. That was, you know, that was actually my first introduction to you. Tell me about the process of what it was like for you to go through what they had posted and how you even got in contact with them to tell them, hey, look, I want to put a documentary about this together. Well, like I said, it started with that conversation with my composer. And then from there, you know, it was late at night. And um, when this conversation happened and things were really slow on the other projects that I was working on and nothing was really happening for two weeks. And I knew that. So I was kind of sitting there twiddling my thumbs thinking like, oh, well, this sucks. I'm sitting around not doing anything. And then I thought, you know, I've never actually gone through their whole catalog of videos. And so I searched and I found their YouTube channel. I found Dave's YouTube channel and I I saw like the first video that was uploaded was the last video ever uploaded to the channel. And that was Dave burying Ed's ashes. Yeah. And I was sitting there stunned watching this, could not believe that this is real. And I thought these are the same guys that ran around this ride. How poetic that he's burying his ashes at Walt Disney World. Like just, you know, the book ending of that, of, you know, um, all this mischievousness and then performing this ultimate act of mischievousness (laughs) in honor of his friend. And yeah, immediately in my head, I thought this is the ending to a story. And I looked at all of the videos and saw that they only had like a few hundred, maybe a thousand, two thousand views. I was like, wow, I'm like, this is just a documentary topic waiting to happen. And I just decided, you know what? 
rather than go through all of the videos, why don't I download all the videos and start cataloging them like I would archival material for a documentary? And so it started like that and then very quickly moved into, okay, well, let me try and write a script. And so I created a whole text document and I went through their entire blog and tried to, because the problem is the way that they kind of uploaded their adventures was they uploaded their videos and they uploaded their blog posts completely out of order. It was not in sequential order. And so using context clues, I, I first put together the story into sequential order. And then from there and from notes that I got from friends went and made it more of like a heist film uh, type narrative. Um, like for example, when I was going through and trying to figure out the order of the story, you know, I would watch a video where Hoot would go, you know, Hoot would fall through a floorboard and be like, ow, I hurt my ankle. And then you know, I'd watch a later video that I thought happened before that video, before he got injured. And I'd be watching the video and at some point, uh, Chief would go, oh, is that where you hurt your foot right there? And I would go, oh, okay. So then that happens after this video, but before that video and so on and so forth. And so that was kind of the, the thought process that I had. But at some point a month in, I thought, man, I really do have to message, uh, hoot before I go any further with this. And before I made the doc, I, I had thought briefly about asking him, but then I remembered a great piece of advice that I got from a documentary filmmaker who was made at the time that I asked him, he had made four feature length documentaries and he was at this film festival that I was at. And he, I asked him for one piece of advice and, and the piece of advice he gave me was, um, it's, it's easier in documentary filmmaking to ask for forgiveness later than it is to ask for permission first. And so I've definitely taken that to heart with a lot of things uh, in filmmaking in general, not just documentary filmmaking. And so that's what I did for the first month. But, you know, eventually I thought, okay, I do have to ask him. And so I reached out to Hoot and I, and I asked him, I, I said, here's the final video is 25 minutes long. Uh, the cut I sent him was, I think, 55 minutes. Oh, wow. And so I sent it to him and I said, this is something that I'm putting together. It had my voice as a narration, uh, which my voice isn't in the final narration in the final video. And I thought, you know, just I, I messaged him, you know, watch this and let me know what you think. And you can tell me to go away forever and I won't make this, you know, it's up to you. And some sometime within that week he got back to me and he said you know i give you my my blessing 100 percent. i've watched this numerous times and i've cried every single time and you 100 percent have my blessing and that was off the rough cut so i was really excited uh, when i got that message from him it's unlike anything i've ever seen in the disney community and it's likely something that we're never gonna see again because the lengths that Disney takes now to put security measures in place so that things like this don't happen are to the nth extreme at this point. So the fact that they were in an attraction that was basically unmonitored for the most part, uh, that's, I mean, it's like a kid in a candy store. Yeah, and I, I definitely knew that uh, going into putting a, putting together all the footage was like, this is the first time that this was probably ever 
vastly documented the way that this this was and probably the last time something like this will ever happen again because you know anything else that that would happen after this would not be out of the pureness of oh let's just document this ride just because and out of the passion of our own hearts now anything that you would see it is stuff like matt sansua where it's just oh i'm just doing this just to break i'm just breaking rules just for the sake of breaking rules and look at me i'm breaking the rules that's not what hoot and chief are doing hoot and chief were filming just strictly for the love of the of the ride for for the purpose of documenting it and preserving it forever which they did yeah. Disney did not preserve or document really anything with Horizons and they did. And so, and also this was pre-internet social media where they could be going, you know, look at us, look at us, look at us. And they didn't even post this stuff to the internet until 10, over 10 years after they had done it. Do you think that played a big role into why, I mean, I've heard that, people within disney know about remain seated please and they know about the adventures that hoot and chief had inside of horizons do you think that the fact that it's been so long or the fact that disney didn't document it plays a part in why they didn't pursue any type of criminal action against them you know that's a very good question um i i i i have no idea honestly i don't know how to answer that i i will say though that uh talking with dave who for those that don't know dave is hoot that's that's his persona that he created for uh the purpose of making the vlog um i've talked to him about it and he's told me that yeah there have been lots of very high up people at various departments at disney that have made offers like you know the next time you're in California, come down. We'll give you a personal tour of Pixar. We love you guys. So, yeah, I don't know. I think maybe it's a combination of like, I feel like at some point you're you're high enough in the company that you just have no idea what mm. what their blog is, what a Hootin' Chief are. Probably don't even know what Horizons is. And it's either that or you're one of the directors, you know, at Pixar going, oh my gosh, I love you guys because they're a geek too. And it's not like one of them, it's not like a director or, you know, some creative person is going to be the one that presses legal action. Yeah. So I don't think anything will ever come of it. Who knows? Maybe when my doc hits a million views, maybe they'll finally hit them with the cease and desist, which I'll, I'll be, I'll be there in the front of the courtroom fighting it. Well, let's hope but, that um, it doesn't come to that because the, Remain Seated, Please is a very short documentary, but you pack so much into it. But more importantly, the story that you tell of the childlike awe that they clearly show walking into this attraction, you feel the heaviness in their heart when they close it the first time. And then, you know, they they had a second chance to do this again and they take full advantage of it. So if anybody hasn't seen it yet, it is definitely worth uh, the fifth watch like I've had the opportunity to do. If you haven't, I'll put it up in the blog post at podcateers.com slash 327. Uh, it's going to be there with a couple of other of Matt's videos as well. But it's just fantastic, man. I love what you did with it. Thank you so much, man. That That's really kind of you. So uh, leading into Halix now, how did 
this magical merger of you and Kevin come together? <laughs> and how did this just all come to be? Well, it, it did start with Remain Seated, please. Um, I had a channel at the time that literally had zero subscribers um, and zero videos. And so I was like, you know what? I've made this video and I think people, I think some people will think it's cool. Who knows? Maybe it'll get 10,000 views somehow. Wouldn't that be amazing? Um, and I put it up and I put it up on Reddit and it blew up like crazy. And um, I was getting texts from people saying, my boyfriend sent me the video because they know how much I love Defunct Land. Um, people, cast members were sharing it around like crazy on Facebook. And I was getting messages like, look, it's on this group page and this group page and that group page. And I was getting gold and silver and platinum on Reddit. And then finally I went on r slash to Funkland and saw that someone had linked, someone else had linked the video and it was the top of the month on Defunctland subreddit. Oh, wow. And so at some point, um, Kevin reached out to me after being tagged, told about the video for the millionth time, because apparently one, Kevin was planning on doing a documentary, a, a video on Horizons and also covering the Hoonchief thing. His friend, Jenny Nicholson, another huge Disney YouTuber, also had a script ready and was planning on doing a Hoonchief video. So it definitely got around to them. And so at some point, Kevin was like, you know what, all of my friends, all these people I trust, they all love this video. I got to reach out to this guy. And so we talked and out of that conversation came an agreement. Okay, let's partner up and let's do, it was it, the contract said for a 40 plus minute video for the, the Funkland YouTube channel. Little did we know that we would be making a freaking feature film documentary <laughs> while also uncovering completely almost lost forever Disney history. It's one of those uh, opportunity came knocking and you swung that door wide open and walked in, right? And, and, and not only that, but Kevin straight up told me to drop the other project that I was working on, which at the time I had been working on this other project that kind of was coming out of a student film that I had made uh, for a year and a half. And it wasn't like Kevin pitched me Halix and said, drop your other project. It was just let's work on something together, put that, put that other thing away. Maybe we'll come back to it a different time, but right now let's, let's work on something completely different and original. You know, it'll be something that we can both agree on. So we had three Skype calls about it where we talked for hours and hours and hours and threw out a bunch of different ideas. Kevin had way more ideas than I did. <laughs> uh, my ideas were weird. And yeah, on the third call, we were five minutes into the call and then he just started laughing to himself. And I was like, what's so funny? And he was like, go on Google right now and type in Halix. And my first reaction was just completely, just my, my, my wires were crossed because, you know, here I am looking at, you know, Star Wars meets Kiss meets, you know, like this, like, it's just so weird. Like, how is this? something that looks so legit and I haven't heard about this before. 
And yeah, at the end of the call, Kevin just said, this is what you're doing. You're getting the band back together. And that was that. And, you know, 21 months later, here we are talking about the finished film. Wow. So it took you almost two years from concept to execution. Yeah, um, just over a year and a half. But what was what was nice is um, we actually were able to release the film not too long after the year point of our Indiegogo wrapping. That's super cool. How difficult... Well, let's talk a little bit about getting everybody together because I can imagine that on its own was an undertaking, especially if you didn't know much about who the members of the band were and Disney didn't have anything on file about this band, right? No, nothing. Um, we, um, we first tried reaching out to Disney and uh, got rejected. And so we thought, okay, well, we can't go that route. And then I scoured the internet and for four months just could not find anything. I even tried looking up like, you know, just, just in the off chance that someone messed up the titling or the year of their family home video, I looked up and watched every Disneyland home video from 78 to 84. Oh, wow. And Halix does not exist on the internet. It only exists in the form of a set of audio recordings done by someone on YouTube who at the time had only uploaded three of their audio recordings, but now um, as you're listening to this podcast, now pretty much all of his audio recordings are up there now. If you look up Halix, you'll, you'll see it's it's like a black, like all the thumbnails are black and white and it's all the different song names. Um, but yeah, finding all the people was really hard. It took a lot of creativity to try to track everyone down. Um, and it was completely different, you know, for each person, you know, I got in contact with Bambi from LinkedIn, mm-hmm. a LinkedIn message <laughs> of all things. Wow. Uh, Gary Kreisel and Mike Post, we were very lucky that we knew someone who knew someone who could get a contact with us for them. Um, Tony Coppola was a funny one because I originally, the name that was provided to me, I don't know who it was, but somewhere it was written down. The name was Tony Caputo was the guy who played the percussionist frog guy. And it wasn't until Bambi gave me her autograph booklet when I was looking at the names and I went, who's this guy, Tony Coppola, Tony Coppola, Tony. Oh my God, they got the name wrong. And it was just like, you know, it's just like all these different weird ways of, of getting in contact with everyone. Facebook Messenger was definitely the our biggest help because, you know, you don't need a phone number. You don't need an email. You can just drop a message on because pretty much everyone has a Facebook page. Right. And um, but even that was hard because, you know, this is 40 years ago. And so a lot of these people are up there in age and a lot of people that we messaged um, don't realize that Facebook is connected to Messenger. And so when Tom finally reached back out to us, he didn't even message me back on Messenger. He left a post up on my wall saying, my Messenger doesn't work. Yes, I was in Halix. And one of the fan members who didn't end up being in the documentary, but did respond back to my message 
responded back nine months after I sent out the initial message. Whoa. So yeah, it was very hard getting in contact with everyone. It basically, to summarize the contacting process, basically, and, and this is my advice to anyone making a documentary, it's like, you know, once you reach out to one person, once you get that first contact, you're gonna get pretty much everyone else. Because yeah. it's just one by one, you know, one person leads to another person and then that person will lead to a different person or a different thing. And that's basically how it always works. Yeah. And it's certainly what helped you when reaching out to Tony, right? Because had you not seen Bambi's book, then you wouldn't have even known to look under a different name. So. Oh, yeah. And, and even an even more specific case of someone helping me was... We got in contact with Roger Freeland, who is the bassist of the band, the Baharneth. And mm -hmm. after my interview with him, I pulled up my Facebook and went, please tell me which of these old white guys named Brian Lucas is the right Brian Lucas, because all of these guys look the exact same <laughs> and none of them have drummer anything on their profile. And he was able, immediately was like that one. And it turned out to be the right Brian. It's like, it's this now engineer that works for this major company. He's no longer a drummer. Yeah, pretty much. And um, <laughs> yeah, it was so crazy because when I got in contact with Brian, he told me that he's, he, he still had footage of the band. And what? so that was how I found out that's who we got the footage from. It was from the drummer, Brian. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. it's so amazing how things like this just kind of seem to piece themselves together because I mean, I didn't keep up with the band members. I didn't research them or anything, but uh, I think of all of them, Tony's the only one that's really gone on to make a really big name for himself. Right. Well, Tony, it's interesting you say that because Tony already kind of was a big name in a way because he had already made a name for himself as one of the world's best tap dancers. And in fact, ah. when I told my mom who she herself used to be a dancer, when I told her that I got, in, I told her the whole story of me getting in contact with Tony and she was like the Tony Coppola. I was like, yeah. She's like, look him up. He has a shoe named after himself. That's how famous of a dancer he was. I was like, no kidding. And sure enough, when I went to go interview Tony, there it was. It was a shoe and it had the Coppola uh, inside of the, the sole. That is just insane. Uh, so when you were going through the process of interviewing everybody, how did you know how much you wanted to ask? Because I can imagine that it's got to be difficult knowing that you have maybe just one shot to talk to these people. How did you prepare to talk to everybody? That's a really good question. Um, no one's actually asked me that yet. Um, so thank you. We had yeah, yeah. a, we, I, I, going off of what I did with Horizons, because of how limited the information on Halix is, I created another text document and basically was like, okay, this is my Halix Bible. And so in this Halix Bible, I would write down every bit of information that I found out. It started off really small and generic and pretty much the only information was they performed for one summer in 1981. We think they might have performed at other venues aside from Disneyland during that time. Here are the names that we know. Here is who we know that has passed, unfortunately, which at the time was, was only 
spoilers, Laura. And that's pretty much it, you know? And then from there, we would interview people. And then after the interview, I would add on to the information that I found out. And it was really interesting because as I did that, I would get to interviews and then suddenly I would be correcting the people I was interviewing. Hmm. because at that point I was able to start to kind of verify a little bit information. And we were also finding things like newspaper clippings that were able to confirm information. And so I remember one of the interviews I did, they said, uh, the, the, the band member in question was like, yeah. And I believe we performed in the summer of 82 and I jumped in and corrected him. I said, actually, you're wrong. <laughs> you performed in the summer of 81. <laughs> Uh, and it was funny because um, as time went on, that like it became correcting more and more and more information, actually, because at some point I really became like the leading head of knowledge in the Halix department and still am. Um, there's a lot of things that didn't make it into the docu documentary that I know about. So if you got any Halix questions that are burning in your, in your skull, hit me up on Twitter, Matthew G Serrano. You know what you've essentially done, right? You've opened up the world to flood you with these questions for the rest of your life. Oh, that is perfectly fine. I am, I am here for it. I see, I, I am all my, my life's purpose, if anything, is to just re reignite the Halix spark and to just get as many Halix fans as possible under my wing. That's awesome. I, I love that enthusiasm about it too, because we've, I've had conversations with people where I talk about how knowledge is free right? You either pass it on or somebody finds out about it in a different way. And then you're just the jerk that didn't tell them about it to begin with. So the fact that you're willing to be that person for people is fantastic. I admire that a lot about you. Thank you. So once you kind of got everything together, what was the process of stacking the documentary in a way where you told the story that you told? Because I can't imagine I mean, watching it, I didn't know that it was going to take the turn that it took towards the end. And you talked a little bit about the spoiler about aspect about that part. But was that the documentary you set out to, to create? Or how did that come to be? Oh, no, not at all. Um, not at all. See, when we were first starting off for the first few months, um, Kevin would be asking me questions like, you know, what, it, what, what are the themes that you're trying to go after? Um, what is the conflict? Um, who, if any, are the antagonists, or what? Uh, what is the the what is the conflict? How can it be classified? And I would just straight up tell them, like after every interview, I'd be like, I have no idea. Every interview I would do would just be people telling me, we did this, we did this, we did this, and then it just didn't work out. And you know, I had a great time, and I loved everyone, and it was really fun, and I'd do it again in a heartbeat. And that makes for a very boring. So I know Kevin was really pushing for that and it was hard because I was really not used to interviewing people. I was still fairly new to even just documentary making as a whole and Kevin was very experienced in it. And so he knew all the things that I needed to ask and I couldn't understand why I was supposed to ask the questions that he was telling me I was supposed to ask. And you know, hindsight is twenty twenty and whatnot. But 
it wasn't until but the thing is it was essential that he was doing that pushing from the beginning because when the moment arose for that really important interview i was ready for it and that interview was tom's interview when mm -hmm. i first got in touch with tom that that phone call was when i learned everything and i learned even just that i don't even think really anyone had mentioned to me that tom and laura were married at the time of halix being a thing they oh, might wow. have or they might not have i don't really know but in any in any in any case i didn't realize that because of halix they they got their divorce and i remember i told kevin about it and we had a conversation about it and he kind of coached me through the the interviewing process and so i went into that interview super prepared more prepared than i was for any other interview before or after and most of our interviews basically the average length of our interviews was 90 minutes sometimes two hours the one i did with tom was the longest one at four and a half hours oh wow of just straight talking just straight talking nothing else and after that i had another phone call with kevin we met and we talked and we went over the script i had I, I believe I'm, I, I had either transcribed it or I had at least written down all the information that I could. And we looked at our story and I had told him that I was struggling with putting it together as a three act structure. And he pitched me two things in that, in that, in that meeting. His first idea was make it a five act structure, which I thought, perfect. You just fixed all my problems. And secondly, he, he pitched, why don't we wait? and introduce Tom in the fourth act. Make the first act, the second act, and the third act be the original Halix film. It's almost like, think of it like the first three acts are the Defunctland video, basically. Mm -hmm. The typical Defunctland video of look at this thing, here's the process of the making of the thing, and then here's the thing in action. And then it ends with, and it didn't work out and here's why it didn't work out. And here's, you know, any, any after effects of the thing. And so, you know, we thought it, it, it just, it would work perfectly with all of, we were having story issues and there were things that we didn't like and things I didn't like about pacing and the characters and, and whatnot. And so holding off Tom until that fourth act and then revealing all of the Tom and Laura personal story and information and then catching you back up to speed with the Halix story, lumping that in with everything that working out just worked out perfectly. And it was also in that moment too, that we realized, you know what, if we can get maybe a little bit more materials and if we can edit this concert footage just right, this can be a feature film. Mm. So that was the first inkling you had of actually expanding this 40 plus minute video into a full blown feature. Yeah, because at that point we, we knew that we could space things out well enough. It, it would have been, you know, Kevin pointed out later on to me, you know, it would have been a terrible feature film because at that time we didn't have Gary Kreisel and Gary Kreisel was essential as a narrator figure for the film. But at that point, we knew that we could make at least something work. 
Yeah, I want to get to Gary in, in just a moment, but you've talked about the script that you created for this documentary. Tell me what it's like to write a script for a documentary versus writing a script for a short or a general film. Um, that's a really good question. Um, so, yeah, I've had a lot of experience with writing um, scripts, short film scripts, never, never, never a feature script. And so it was very daunting to have to be like, okay, you've never written a feature film script, write a feature documentary script. So for those that don't know, sit down. You're, you're about to enter into Mr. Serrano's classroom. Um, but basically what we did was we had this program called Temi where you dump in your footage or your audio of your interview and it self-transcribes it for you. Oh. It's annoying because it doesn't get all the words correctly. And, you know, I would recommend don't, do make a movie about something that doesn't exist as a real word, but then also don't because, you know, in the case of us, you know, it was very easy searching on Facebook Halix because then you're going to find literally everyone who ever has mentioned Halix before in a comment or a post. And it was great for finding fans, but then it also sucks in the process of transcribing or having an AI transcribe because it's he licks, hey licks, like it's every single other, say every single word combination to create the sound Halix. I wouldn't know that with a name like Hey Zen. I don't know what you're talking <laughs> about, Matthew. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you can relate to my pain. Um, yeah, so we used that process and it, and it transcribed everything. And then from there, I just created, okay, act one, act two, three, four, five what would go into each one of those acts? And I would just go, go through the whole of the interview, reading it, and then go, okay, this quote seems like an act one quote, or this quote seems like an act three quote. And I would just go through and throw all those in that way. And then from there came the tidying up and the pacing and the, and the sub, sub cataloging and, and whatnot. But to answer your question about the difference between a, a, a narrative and a documentary when it comes to screenwriting. Um, well, one thing, first of all, I would, rec I would recommend is um, I never consider myself to be that good of a screenwriter. After finishing Halix, I reapproached a short film idea that I had and I wrote the short film in two days. So I would highly recommend any screenwriters out there or filmmakers get into documentary filmmaking because i was just talking i i was just on the phone with a with uh with someone who works in the industry he, he runs the talent agency and he told me documentary filmmaking is screenwriting and it blew my mind when he said that because he's absolutely right um yeah because you know when you're screenwriting it's just okay well you know, so, so it, de it depends on where you're going into it because, you know, some people go into screenwriting already knowing the ending. And so they, they, they try to figure out, you know, everything that happens before, or they know how they want it to start, or they know what's in the middle, or they just have a general concept. But at some point, you're just going to have to pull things out of thin air at some point. In a documentary sense, it's like, no, this is what you are working with. And so using what you have and using what's given to you, you start to realize what makes an interesting character. 
because you notice, oh, it's all these little subtle things that people do. You start to notice as you're reading, because you know, you're reading it like it's dialogue, all these conversations that you've had with these people, you start to notice the subtle differences in the way that people talk and how that can contribute to someone's character. And then you start to also realize what makes a scene interesting, what makes an act interesting, what makes something flow, what propels the action. It like, it, it, it really helps you see clearly the, the mechanisms that go into a proper script when you're, when you already have the material sitting in front of you and you just have to put, put it together. It's almost like the best way I can describe it is like, you know, screenwriting is to painting as documentary filmmaking is to puzzle making where, you know, how people have puzzles that are based yeah. off of paintings. It's almost like the whole time that you're putting together the puzzle, you're studying the craftsmanship and the, and the, and the, and the handwork at play and the use of color and the use of depth. And you're, and you're subconsciously studying that as you're putting together a puzzle. And then now, now that you finish making this puzzle, then suddenly painting becomes, you know, so much easier and so much clearer. And, and so it, it, the same goes into, you know, writing a script for a documentary, in my opinion, at least. That's a beautiful analogy between the two, because as you were describing it, I was thinking to myself, that's that's a completely different approach to character development, because if you're writing a feature film in itself, you control the characters, you control what they do, what they say, how they act, their backstory. But you can't control that in a documentary. These characters in your documentary already have a backstory and you're just trying to figure out where they fit in the puzzle. So the fact that you made that analogy just made it all click in my brain. So that's fantastic. It also is a, is a is a case of you know like in your in your script writing process, figuring out ways to because you know like in in the writing of a script you have all these ideas for things that you want to happen and that you want to do with your film and that you want your characters to do, and it's a lot easier to mess around with that and to play around with that and experiment with that in a documentary sense, you know, with messing around with the script and reorganizing the script or you know cutting around your interviews and whatnot and so my my personal favorite example of um the usage of like really trying to establish characters in in our film is the the scene that happens at the end of act one where it's uh brian the drummer and bruce the guitarist uh talking about the costume you know, <laughs> yes. having having Bruce saying, you know, I didn't I wasn't going to wear this or this or that. And I especially wasn't going to wear this. And then having Brian go, yeah, what am I going to wear? My jeans? Oh, well, I guess because the guitarist wasn't going to wear this, I guess I'm going to have to wear this. Yeah, and it was uncomfortable. You had to stretch your arms, and it's like, okay, he's he, he's the diva, and he's the Eeyore. It's like you don't need to tell the audience who they are or what kind of characters they are. Mm -hmm. Like they they tell you just based off of their actions, their mannerisms, and and how they say things. And I think that was like a huge aha moment for me. That's awesome. Yeah, and I can imagine that as you're going through the process of 
interviewing everybody because it's such a different style as you're asking the questions you're able to ask questions in such a way where you almost get the answer or follow-up that you need in order to continue telling your story right yeah right uh so back to gary kreisel for a second how did gary become involved in the project and why was the decision made to use him as the narrator for the story versus one of the band members that actually was part of the experience um well it was just a really natural thing honestly because the whole time that we were making the film you know at some point we would ask someone a question and they would just go i couldn't answer that you got to get gary for that you know you know who you should interview you should interview gary you know who's the man behind all of this gary kreisel just gary 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 everyone said you got to film with gary and you know we realized you know of everyone involved gary is the only person that was there from the beginning, middle, and end. He is there throughout the entire story. He is omnipresent. He is the man behind the magic. He is the one with the idea initially to do this band. And even was the guy who, you know, was try and in some cases failed to stay in contact with everyone involved in the project. And so it was really only natural having Gary be the narrator. Yeah. I get, as you're explaining it, I can understand um, what you're saying. Do you remember the order in which you interviewed everybody? Um, roughly. Um, I, I, can, I can tell you this. I can tell you that um, either Jim Magon or Roger Freeland were our first interviews. And I can tell you that our final interview was with Rick Demagella. And that was really interesting because when we interviewed him, we were really desperate to get some sort of a cold open for the movie. And um, Kevin told me, well, what about this guy? And I talked to him and he told me, by the way, the first rock band I ever saw was Halix at Disneyland. And I thought, boom, there you go, perfect. That's our cold open. Imagine you're watching a movie about this band you never heard of, but then this guy starts it off by saying, the first, you know, the very first rock concert I ever saw was at Disneyland. It was just this weird band. And so we, it took a while to schedule, but we finally got it scheduled. We went out, we interviewed him. We wrapped up the interview. And keep in mind, this is a couple of months ago. He stands up and he looks at his phone and he goes, this just in, Disneyland is closing due to COVID-19. We quite literally got our final interview for the film the day that quarantine began. No way. Yeah. And so from there, the rest of our post-production was done entirely remotely uh, during quarantine. Whoa. But we were able to snag snag that last interview at the very, very last minute uh, back in March. I have to admit, that's kind of mind-blowing. Yeah, it was very lucky timing for us. Wow. Did you need to do any pickup shots prior to that with any of the other uh, cast members or band members? Um, No, no. We had had gotten everything um, at that point. And we were definitely hoping that, you know, we would hear some other magical thing of, oh, Disneyland still has this or... Disney Records still has a master. And, um, you know, uh, it's funny that 
the final nail in that coffin unless uh, uh, who knows maybe something is happening because i know that now that more people have seen the movie i think there are more people that are passionate about themselves trying to gather more halix information which is very exciting to us um but the kind of final nail in the coffin for a while of yeah pretty much everything you see in this film is what exists of halix was there was someone there was a member of the press who thought our documentary was a hoax and in fact messaged me that and asked me like is this a mockumentary is this a documentary and i have never been asked that and no one has asked me that since and so apparently that member of the press went to disney i found out through a connection i have and an a email thread was created and passed around to along to numerous departments until finally reaching the archives and the archives said yes this is a real thing Pretty much everyone else said, I have no idea what the heck you're talking about. I'm going to pass you on to this department and so on and so forth. But the archives were able to confirm it. And in the email thread, they put that they were able to find a newspaper clipping, a that was a review of the band, a press release that was also another newspaper clipping, and the black and white photo that you can currently Google of Halix right now and oh yeah, yeah, yeah that is it that is it nothing else exists that, is that we know insane to me i you know it's interesting to me how disney chooses the things that they want to archive sometimes because you know when dave smith came up with the whole ar- archives idea you have to applaud him you know for that because who thinks in advance you know one day we're gonna need this and we're gonna show it off to millions of people and they're gonna go nuts over it so you create this entire building or several buildings with all these things from your past, right? But it's interesting to me how, one, both documentaries that you've created are for things that there's apparently no other data for and no other archives for in, in Disney's possession. Uh, but if, even if it was a one summer thing, you would figure that there would be some kind of artwork. There would be like when I heard... I hate to spoil it, but when I heard Mike talk about how he didn't keep any of the the tapes or anything, I was kind of dumbfounded by that. I didn't, I couldn't believe that they didn't want to somehow keep something of this project, especially Gary. You know, Gary, if he was the one that kind of saw it from the beginning to the very end, I would have thought that he would have wanted to keep something, especially with the push that they were giving the band to try to get them signed and going through the paces that they were going through. And to be fair, they did. They did. Um, they did preserve the. Um, I want to say that they did try to preserve the wog frog uh, head, and that. And they definitely. They told me they they absolutely uh, were so proud of the Baharnath costume. And they would show it around to people and present it and just, yeah, they weren't doing a, a careful enough job. They didn't know of taking care of it. And so just over time, it just rotted and fell apart like pretty much most of the pieces did. And um, yeah, they didn't really think to preserve really anything else because why would they? You know, yeah. this was an experiment. This was, you know, at a time where you know they weren't really in the in the habit of saving things like masters this wasn't the time where 
footage was easily accessible and having a camera was just like such an easy thing. Uh, it's a lot of factors. There's a lot of factors. And I don't, I don't think anyone is to blame, yeah. but you know, of what is documented is in the movie. And it's so funny because Gary specifically himself in our interview said, I was stunned that you guys found anything. <laughs> and that makes us really happy. I'm sure it makes a lot of people happy because, you know, there's, there's a really special place for music in the Disney parks. And it kind of goes to show that Halix was this blip in time that I feel brought a different type of crowd that loves that style of music, but may not necessarily want to show that they were Disney fans or they don't fit in into what's the Disney mold, basically. And I think that's also what's given rise to things like Dapper Day or Villains Day or all these themed days that go on in the park because not everyone identifies as a Disney princess. Not everyone identifies as a Disney prince, you know, and having these different elements around in the park allows people to connect with the park in a way that makes them feel like they're home. Right, which is why I think things like Electronica and Mad Tea Party were so huge when they were going on a California adventure. Oh, I absolutely agree with that. And I'm I'm so glad that you you brought that up that the whole point of now everyone wants to be a princess. You know, like it's so funny, so many people will be like, You're obsessed with Disney. And you know, to clarify, I'm not obsessed with Disney, you know, like as just a company as a whole. You know, I think that the company is very, very flawed. There's a lot of things that I'm very strongly against that the company does. I don't care for a lot of the movies that people are gushing over. To me, I love Disney because I love things that are made well. And I am obsessed with the people that have made these things that I consider to be masterpieces and 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 most specifically i'm obsessed with disney in the theme park element of things mm -hmm. and so i'm glad that you brought that up and also i'd like to mention that um i am very much trying and wanting to do a halix days meetup uh next year covid I'm willing at <laughs> disneyland I'm sure that's going to go over very, very well. <laughs> when somebody tries to show up as a Bahartmith or, or a Bahartnith, uh, Bahartmith or Bahartnith, N or it's, M? It's Bahartnith, just Bahartnith. Like, it's like a nice. So it's like it's supposed to be Behemoth, but then changed around. So like Baharnoth, Baharnoth, Baharnoth. That's how I'm going to remember it now as the Baharnoth. That's Sir Baharnoth to you. Thank you. There you go. <laughs> Have him show up uh, looking like a woolly mammoth and in a bowler hat and uh, having a monocle or something. I would love show that. <laughs> awesome. Personally, I would love that. And I'm also <laughs> very anxious for the next um, convention at Disney. Specifically, I guess I should say specifically D23 because I have been hearing whispers that there are some people that are trying to get Halix cosplay groups started. That's fantastic. Uh, yeah, you know, it's funny w what you just said about the parks. I, I agree with you, man. There's, you know, I've, I get a lot of flack from some of my Disney friends about how I have two boys and I get 
schooled by them a lot about why I don't push Disney on them so much. I always tell them, look, the kids have to grow up and form their own opinions. I'm not going to force something on them that they're going to end up hating later. And their argument is, well, you're teaching it to them wrong. It's like, no, I'm not. Everybody learns how they want to learn. Everybody will connect with something the way that they want to connect. But it's funny because as you were telling me earlier about how when you were in the car and you were going through these DVDs and you would go through these special features, that's exactly what my boys do now. You know, they, especially now with Disney Plus, they'll go into the special features and I can hear them in the other room watching these things. And then 15 minutes later, they'll run into my, my office and they'll say, Dad, did you know that? And then they'll fill in all these blanks about what they just learned. And all I can do is sit there and say, really? No kidding. What? That's you know, awesome. And just play along with it because I realized that when they're passionate about something, they're going to run with that. You know, and I want to be as supportive as possible when it comes to whatever they want to do. And the thing about theme parks and the theme park industry is that people may not know that people that work for Disney end up going to work for Universal. They work for Knott's Berry Farm. You know, I remember early on when we had a chance to talk to like Rolly Crump and we talked about stuff that he made at Knott's Berry Farm. People were like, what? He worked for the competition? It's like, yeah, man, this is, everybody does what they're passionate about. Yeah, if you can have the opportunity to make something great somewhere, why not do that? Like, right? yeah, D Disney fans are so funny, especially when it comes to the parks, you know? It's such a weird thing, like the, the hate on Universal. Universal, Disney should be scared of Universal because right now Universal has the best ride in existence and that's Hagrid's motorbike adventure. And don't come at me in my on my DMs <laughs> until you have ridden Hagrid's. Once you have ridden Hagrid's, you will be converted. You will see that there is a way to find a perfect balance between having a lot of fun, a lot of thrills, but while also being gorgeously themed and immersive. And your example that you gave about your boys, I, I have to applaud you because oh, thank you. That, that is honestly, you know, not like I didn't get that as a kid because I, I definitely I definitely did get that. But, you know, we definitely need more of that. And I think that is perfectly exact. That's is, that's exactly what a parent should be doing. And that honestly is the bare that should be the bare minimum. Um, I have a horrible example of the complete exact opposite of, of a kind of parent that you are. Uh, I think it was like two or three years ago. I was at Disneyland. I, I remember exactly where it was. I was at the monorail station in Tomorrowland waiting for the monorail. And I'm standing next to this little boy and her mom or his, his mom. And the little boy is looking down at the Nemo subs and he goes, mom, are those real submarines? And you have to think, okay, what is, what is the, the logical answer? Yes, absolutely. They are son, because you just spent all of this money and all of this time to get your son to this place that that's one sole purpose is to make kids believe that, you know, all these things are real. And she goes, no, those aren't real. And then she goes, yeah. And, and, and the thing is, the thing is, it'd be one thing if she goes, no, but, but get this right. And like, starts explaining, like, 
you know, the actual practical magic of the making of the submarines or something. No, all of the information she starts, she starts dispelling, she, she starts debunking every single thing in Disneyland and gives the wrong information. Oh. It was the most frustrating thing to sit and listen to. And it was the closest I've ever came to telling a parent how to do their job. I was this close to stepping in and going, Hey, stop. What are you doing? Like, yeah. what are you doing? Going back to the start of this conversation, you know, in my head, me having that moment where I'm sitting there thinking, oh my God, the spaceship is real. Star Tours is real. And getting off of the ride and just thinking, no way, no way. Like that has to be real. Do we just go to space? And like not even being able to comprehend it and just going along with it or riding Haunted Mansion for the first time and thinking, what? Well, holograms, but the, uh, it can't be a hologram. But if, if it was a hologram, we would see holograms everywhere. We'd see holograms everywhere. That, uh, do they make ghosts? Are those real? Those are real ghosts. You know, and it's like, this lady instead was like, no, the boulder's a 3D effect. And it's like, what are you saying? Like, if you're gonna, like, there's a way to like, dispel that these things are not real and you can tell in a way like you know what your boys are discovering right now of the magic behind the magic and no she was dispelling everything in the wrong way and it was so heartbreaking more than anything because there you go you just ruined like not ruined disneyland but in a, in a sense yeah you did you you ruined disneyland like this kid's never going to look at this stuff the same way ever again and not just that kid, but every kid around her that heard her spout out that incorrect information, you know, and just because she read a BuzzFeed article, you're an expert. So I guess you have to share <laughs> that, right? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I guess maybe that, I wonder if that's what she was thinking. It's funny to me because I, I, I think I've been on both sides of the spectrum on this one. The times that I generally tend to jump in and play the actually game with my kids is if they're clearly saying something that I know is wrong because they saw a video that, you know, said the wrong thing or said the wrong name or said the wrong year. And, it, and at that point, they're already trying, they're actively trying to seek out the information. Right. This kid was like, are those submarines real? I would be like, yeah, they are. You want to go on that next? Yep. Instead, yeah. the kid, he literally, like, it was so sad because sitting there, like every time that the mom would tell him something wasn't real, he just sat there and went, really? That's like horrible. He, it, was, it was horrible. It yeah. wasn't like, it wasn't like, like I remember as a kid, like me finding out like the way things were made. And I was like, my eyes were blasting out of my skull. And I was like, tell me more. What about this? What do you know about this ride? What do you know about this ride? No, mm -hmm. instead this kid was sitting there going, really? It was so sad. It was like the yeah. saddest. I've and, seen a kid, aside from like crying kids at Disneyland. And it really goes to show where certain people's, I don't want to necessarily call it disdain for, for Disney comes from, but it certainly branches from that because I think there's some people that early on have experiences like that that sour them to the experience in the parks that just, they don't want to go back. They don't want to learn about it. They They think, 
you know, forget about this. I'm just going to move on to something else. And they move on to the alternatives, which I guess would be universal. But like you said, you know, universal has been giving Disney a run for its money for a long time. I mean, when the wizarding world opened, you know, this is a conversation we've had on the podcast before about how immersive experiences are the wave of the future in all theme parks at this point. And when we got Cars Land, we we're like, wow, this is this is amazing. You know, you're stepping right into this Pixar film. But the Wizarding World did something completely different where you weren't just walking into this movie location, but you were interacting with it in a way that you've never been able to interact with things before. And that experience stays with you. It's a magical thing. That is what inspires people to continue doing this type of stuff in the future. Yeah, I agree. I think, um, I think honestly, it's important to have an open eye to as many things as possible because you really never know where like the next brilliant thing might come from where the next source of inspiration will come to you from. Um, I'm the kind of person that, you know, in my top 10 lists of favorite movies, you know, I could have a movie like The Shining that is so highly regarded as one of the greatest films of all time from the great auteur Stanley Kubrick. But then right next to it have The Polar Express, a movie that pretty much everyone hates, but I see something in that film that no one else does. And I think that it's really important to not, you know, I think people that whose Disney is their personality are full offense, the most boring people on the planet because they don't have any taste. Like they don't have real taste. I like whenever people are into weird stuff to me, the weird, like when someone's like, Oh, what I'm into. Oh, it's kind of weird. I'm like, you got me for the next three hours. Let's hear all about how passionate you are about this thing that no one else is passionate about. I want to know. I want a I want a front row seat because to me, especially as a filmmaker, or what makes someone interesting, or in my case, what 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 makes me a better and better filmmaker is the more in touch I am with my tastes and the more diverse my tastes are. And so I think diversifying where you consume stuff from is very important because it helps you to appreciate things more. Because then you also start to see how things can be better. Yeah. Because then it's not just an, it's just not a case of, oh, I didn't like this thing it then becomes a thing of, well, you know what? I know something that has done this better. Mm-hmm. And that can be applied to anything. Yep, I completely agree, man. I've had very similar conversations with people about that exact same thing. Uh, so I'm glad you actually brought that up because out of curiosity, I just want to know what were some of the weird topics that you pitched to Kevin when you said earlier, uh, oh, my ideas were weird when you were thinking about what you wanted to do the documentary about oh yeah if you want to hear weird okay so i threw out an idea of and i didn't even know how we would frame it or what it would be but it would be on the topic of the weird fixation that american media had in the late 80s and early 90s with the best way i can put it is plastic people and if you want to know what i'm talking about just look up Max Headroom. Max Headroom, yeah. Or look up uh, the Puttermans. Um, and there are some other examples that I, I, I was able to find that I couldn't, I, I can't remember off the top of my head. But it was just like, yeah, what is this whole weird fixation of like taking someone's face and then like reapplying their same face but plastic over that face? You know, <laughs> to create this really weird effect that you do not see anymore. 
you do not see it. Um, even in the theme park realm, we saw something like that with um, Superstar Limo. Well, we saw it with the fairy godmother in Disneyland Paris too, I think, where she was walking around with this weird plastic head that just looked horrendous. Oh yeah, but that was more like a like a solid mask. What I mean is more like a like foam and latex, where it's a lot more flexible, but like but like weirdly so, and you can talk with it. And so mm. if if you if you know Superstar Limo and the uh, and the agent uh, yeah. Swifty Larue, <laughs> his his weird way of talking, where it's like oh, there's like a person underneath there, but he's like plasticky. Or actually, you know, come. Come to think of it, it a ba- it's a it, this is a bad example of this, uh, or I guess just, I should say it's a very good example because it actually looks very good. But the Hondo Anaka performer uh, at Smuggler's Run kind of is mm-hmm. an example of that of very intensive prosthetics that almost looks like a little bit like you know their mouth isn't really moving and enunciating it just looks like it's going yeah so that was <laughs> that was one idea that i pitched out to kevin it was a very weird idea i have no idea how we would make that film i mean if anybody's gonna find a way to do it it's gonna be you <laughs> <laughs> thank you I, yeah i know i i tend to I, I i seem to have a way with um making uh, a, a whole lot out of uh, not a lot of nothing, basically. Of uh, basically nothing, and <laughs> that is definitely something that um, when Gary saw an initial cut that I sent him, he, we had a whole phone call about it, and yeah, that was the big thing that he commended me on, which I really appreciated, was that he was like, "You really made something out of nothing," which That's I really insane. appreciate. Yeah, when I had my buddy Jason on last week's episode to talk about Halix a little bit, and. I have this theory that now that this is out in the open, that somehow people that, you know, had a T-shirt or a poster or a napkin that had the H on it from that summer, somehow in their attic or in their basement, uh, or there's going to be some estate sale that goes on where all of a sudden all this Halix merchandise pops up, all you know, and people are going to be like, wow, it really did exist. I, I really feel like stuff is out there. Maybe it's just that people don't know what it is because that's really what I got from watching this, that especially if you struggled so much to find somebody within the Disney company where these email threads were going on, you know, you talked about the reporter that was trying to get this confirmation. I mean, I think if this conversation or if this documentary happened 10 or 15 years ago, I think there would have been tons of information available because Eisner's Disney is very different than what Iger's Disney became and soon JPEG's Disney will become, you know? So at that point, there would have been a lot of people that worked within Michael Eisner's Disney that would have been like, oh yeah, Halix, that one experiment that failed. Let me tell you what I know, you know, but we're so far removed from it. Next year is- We're even more far removed because it was actually right before Michael Eisner. It was Ron Miller. Oh, right. And he was the one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Ron Miller because Gary talked about how he had gone to him with jailbait, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, he funny enough, um, and this didn't make it into the documentary. I found out later talking to Gary that Halix actually started off as a movie pitch when he worked with when Gary worked with Carson Van Austin on the concept drawings. They went and pitched it as a movie pitch. 
to Ron. Oh, and Ron wow. asked them, well, what's the story? And they're like, we haven't thought that far ahead yet. And he's like, well, you can't pitch me a movie without a story. And so they're like, okay, well, back to the drawing boards, I guess. And it was that next conversation that they went, well, why don't we make this a project for the record company? What if we made a band out of this? And um, that's how Halix was born. And then, yeah, later on, they went and they asked Ron about Jail Bay. And, uh, you know, there's that whole scene in the doc. But it's funny that you, you, you mentioned, you know, the finding of more Halix materials. Um, that is already happening, my friend. Um, nice. It already happened before the movie, you know, with Rick going on eBay and finding the poster. But the, the original poster, which I've thought in the back of my head, you know, that original poster, that original painting, that should exist somewhere, right? Turns out it does. And now it is in the hands of Disney collector extraordinaire Richard Kraft. Oh, who wow. I found out through a mutual connection that I have. He saw the documentary. He loved it. And he searched in the back of his head thinking, okay, well, they mentioned a Hollywood movie poster artist made this poster for them. Who could it be? And he looked carefully at the image. And if you look at the Halix poster, you know, on Google and our documentary, whatever. If you, if you look at the base of where Laura is standing on, there is a name written onto the base, Alvin. There is a very famous movie poster artist by the name of John Alvin. He did, I think he's probably most famous for doing all the Disney animated Renaissance movies like mm -hmm. Aladdin. And I believe he did Beauty and the Beast and all of those. And so um yeah uh richard told me uh all about how he reached out to john alvin's widow and made a deal and he bought the original poster and apparently it, there is a spot in the center of his dining room where it will be going and so i'm very honored <laughs> that i was able That's to introduce awesome. him to halix and that he was able to find the poster because if anyone's gonna own that poster it's it's him and uh and I know he'll take good care of it. And yeah, apparently um, he found out that, you know, there was an assistant or someone who was helping John when he was alive. John unfortunately passed, I believe in 2008 or 2009. And so he's not with us anymore, but um, an assistant that worked with John remembered and told Richard about the last time that she herself had seen this poster. And it was a little bit before he passed when they were going through all of his posters and cataloging them. And she pulled out the Halix poster and went, what's this one, John? And he goes, oh, that's, that's a poster I did a long time ago for this really fun thing they had at Disney for a time. And they never talked about it again until 12 years later, here we are. See, this, it's magical. This is what we were waiting for. Look, here's what I think is going to happen, Matthew. One, the Halix community is going to grow to massive proportions because of this documentary, which in turn, Disney's going to be like, wait a second, we need a cut of this again. So at some point, they're going to recreate everything, and they're going to have at the next D23 Expo an exhibit dedicated to Halix, the lost Disney band from 1981. And then they're going to have a special presentation with Matthew Serrano and Kevin Perger <laughs> to show the documentary and talk about... That'll be the face reveal. And Yeah, and then that's where you talk about everything. And then you have whatever band members still want to come on stage and 
you're going to have this entire expo presentation. That is what I wish for you, my friend, and that's what I think is going to happen. You know, not to spoil anything, but uh, I think there are some pretty cool things that are going to be coming on the horizon, so stay tuned. That's fantastic. So one final question. I have to ask, how much footage do you still have left, and was the original cut the length that the final feature was? Um, by, by footage left, do you mean the concert footage? Uh, any footage that you have that you feel is still worth putting out? Because I feel like next year is technically the 30th anniversary of Halix. Will we uh, see... 40th. 40th uh, I can't math sometimes. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Uh, okay. <laughs> see? Even, even when I'm being interviewed, I'm correcting my interviewees <laughs> with information. Well done, sir. God, I'm well so done. annoying. <laughs> no, you know what? I appreciate it. Because otherwise, I have to add a record scratch and be like, oh, I'm sorry. I couldn't math at the moment, so I technically <laughs> meant to say 40. <laughs> Uh, what do you have left to still show the Halix community that's, that's growing at this moment that you didn't show in the documentary that you wish, like, man, if this was a Blu-ray, these things would be in the special features? Well, it's really funny you say that because um, right after we record this, I'm going to be wrapping up our behind-the-scenes documentary that will be exclusive to those who donated to the according tiers on our indiegogo when we originally held our campaign ah, very cool that being said i am trying and i i think i think this will happen because kevin really wants to do this as as do i we had an idea and i don't know where this will go on so stay tuned for this but we want to do a commentary track to release publicly for free where we go one one track a part one where we go over the original cut from December of 2019, and then where we watch the final movie and, and compare and contrast and, and whatnot. And so that I hopefully will be coming soon. As to things that we haven't released, I can't really speak on that. Um, I don't know, but I, I think at some point I will try and go back and look through and see you know, I, uh, originally when, when the doc came out, I, I released some original full-size scans that we had and i cropped them to be phone wallpaper size for people mm-hmm. yeah i don't know um i'll have to think about that uh what what, what was your other question your, your first question was about is there anything that hasn't been released yet and just whatever you wanted to release as part of the special features that's really oh what and, I uh, the, the the other thing was uh there you go thank you i remember now the other thing is deleted scenes that's another thing that we yeah. promised people Right on. Well, uh, sadly, I was not part of the Indiegogo. However, I would have loved to be a part of it uh, after I learned about it. I learned about it too too late uh, to be involved with that. But I hope there's some way that eventually all of us that were unable to donate to the original one will have a, a way to purchase our way in or something because now after I've seen it, I would love to see all the additional footage and all those deleted scenes. You're a wonderful storyteller, Matthew. I see very, very big things for you in the future outside of Remain Seated, Please, and now uh, Live from the Space Stage, A Halix Story. Documentaries are not an easy thing to tackle and I mean, I went through so many emotions watching this one that I, I went into it thinking, oh, this is a cool story. Like, all right, well, it's a it's a cool band. And then by the end, I was like, oh, no, she never got what she wanted. 
you know so it was just amazing man i love what you did with it thank you so much and yeah to to to, to answer uh your your what you what you were asking um uh if anyone wants to support uh me directly there is a donation link that you can click in the description of the documentary um for those that want to see some of these behind the scenes things and whatnot i think i don't know there might someday be the possibility of a, of a blu-ray release so stay tuned for that um we're forever adjusting things you know i know that originally we were like okay we're not going to make merch and then everyone screamed at us to sell the hat that they see the Baharneth wearing. And so we made more pins and more shirts and more hats. And so, you know, who knows, some, something might come of that too. But um, oh, there's, there's a lot of, there's definitely a lot of fun uh, Halix related things that are coming soon. I just announced um, a few days ago that on Virtual Magic Kingdom, my VMK, for those that know it is that, uh, they are going to be releasing very soon a Halix little band in their game, as well as the space stage as what? an extension of their Tomorrowland. And I'm working with, uh, I've been working for, for the last, I wanna say month now with Imagine Fun, which is the big Disneyland Minecraft server. They are bringing the space stage back as well as Halix. And even more stuff other than that, that I can't talk about yet, but we'll be talking about very, very soon. That's fantastic. Well, in order for people to stay in contact with the things that you're doing now and the things that are coming up in the future, tell everybody how they can connect with you. Sure. Um, I know I plugged myself earlier, but uh, you can find me on Twitter at Matthew G Serrano. I'm also on Instagram at Matthew underscore Serrano, and you can find my YouTube channel where you can watch Remain Seated, please, uh, at just Matthew Serrano on YouTube. Right on. Uh, all of the links will be in the blog post for this episode. So head over to podcasters.com slash 327. You'll be able to see both documentaries, the commentary piece that Matthew uploaded for Remain Seated, Please. And uh, Matthew, it was a pleasure speaking with you today, man. I'd love to have you on the podcast again one day to keep chatting. Sure, man. Yeah, just hit me up anytime. And uh, uh, do you guys do video on your podcast? You know, it's something that I've considered doing. I think it's something that I'm going to jump into soon, but it, it isn't something that we've done yet. Because I was going to say, we got to end this podcast with, uh, you got to hit him with the H. You got to hit him with the H, the hand H. Oh, I know, right? What What is it? I'm trying to remember. So for those uh, listening on audio, the best way to do it is you you bring the thumb and the pinky in. You bring the thumb and the pinky in, pinky. Oh, spread that's right. out your three fingers and have only the middle fingers touching. That's right. It and looks like a tie fighter. That, yeah, it'll look like a tie interceptor or uh, yeah, and uh, that's how you do the H. Right on, man. Well, uh, again, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you guys all enjoyed this talk with Matthew. Again, check out the documentaries over at podcasters.com slash 327. Until next time, keep dreaming, keep moving forward, and always remember to pass on the magic. Have a fantastic week, everyone.